CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon and welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is present. Right, so uh, we've... Uh, We've got uh, we snagged a good one. a good a good discussion today. Yeah, we've we've got uh, a massive guest. Uh, really appreciative to have him coming on the show. Um, we're recording this a bit before you've heard it. You, you're hearing it in February, and uh, we we're recording in uh, later Jan. Um, our guest today is Professor Jordan Peterson. He is a clinical psychologist and a tenured professor at the University of Toronto. Um, I think a lot of you will know him, um, well known for his recent um, appearance on Joe Rogan. And I think by the time you hear this, uh, probably another podcast with Sam Harris and a whole bunch of others in between, um, all worth listening to and including his own podcast uh, with with content uh, going back, I think, as far as 12, 14 years um, from what I've heard. So uh, really interesting stuff. Prof, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for the invitation, although I'm not so sure i'm happy being referred to as massive i'm actually rather thin so uh, yeah well i, I just want to apologize for the, up. <laughs> the hyperbole <laughs> no problem no problem cool so uh, professor peterson so you're most well known for for being against bill c 16 i believe it's called which, yes. which is a bill that says uh, preferred gender pronouns will be enforced through the law and if uh, for, for trans people specifically, and if one doesn't use the preferred pronouns, I believe it's a form of hate speech, but I could be under correction there. Um, yeah, well, it's please. It's well, it's 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 complicated because the the bill, which is a federal bill, is actually rather short, and what it does is instantiate as protected categories gender identity and gender expression. Um, and the gender expression inclusion is rather strange, in my opinion, because gender expression is not a group. It's, it's according to the Ontario Human Rights Commission, whose provisions will constitute the framework for interpreting the federal bill. Ontario is a province, not the federal. Uh, it's not a federal entity, but the federal Department of Justice has indicated that this rather short bill, C-16, will be interpreted in accordance with the policies of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, which is a very, in my opinion, essentially a kangaroo court. Um, it, it falls under the nomenclature of social justice tribunal, um, which gives you some indication about its, uh, it gives you perfect indication about its, let's call it philosophical and political orientation. And it it's actually the surrounding policies that made me quite nervous about the federal bill. And I don't think that the politicians who passed the bill so rapidly, especially on the conservative side, really had any idea what they were doing. And I know the conservatives are actually afraid of opposing a bill like this because they believe, and with good reason, that they will immediately be targeted as racists and bigots. And they're not willing to take that risk as individuals or as a party. So, which to me means that there's no way they can be conservative anymore because it's it's become, in some sense, unacceptable. And that's a very bad thing because people are actually liberal or conservative as a consequence of their temperament. So 
liberal people tend to be high in a trait called openness, which is a creativity dimension, but low in a trait called conscientiousness, which is basically industriousness and orderliness. Um, particularly, it's the orderliness part of conscientiousness that's the best predictor. Whereas conservatives tend to be high in conscientiousness, particularly orderliness, and low in openness. And that divide isn't going away. It's, it's, it's built into the human landscape and partly what politics does. And this is really new understanding, I would say. And it's really only become clear in the last, to the degree it is even clear, in the last 15 years, partly because of the work of people like Jonathan Haidt, who's been in investigating the really the biological underpinnings of political and moral belief. And we've done a fair bit of work in that regard in my lab as well. So you can't just make half the population's take on the world illegal. That isn't going to work. And, and here's something to think about. I think this is very important. So I mentioned that the primary political axis seems to be openness and conscientiousness. And those traits aren't very highly correlated. They, they vary independently. And so if you're high in one, that does not predict you being high in the other. In fact, quite the opposite in, 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 those, in the case of those two. So the question is, why in the world does the political spectrum run along the axis of creativity and orderliness, essentially? And I figured it out, I think. And it's really, a, it's really something to know. I believe that the primary political question, and perhaps it's always been this question, is borders. And the liberals and the left say, lean towards open border policies and the conservatives lean toward closed border policies. But it's not just political borders. That's the thing. It's the idea of borders per se. And so, you know, there, there are things in different categories have borders between them. People's identities have borders between them. Concepts have borders between them. And the conservatives like to have the categories tightly encapsulated mm. and fortified and separate. Because orderly people, for example, are disgust sensitive. It's, it's part of what grounds their orderliness. It's really useful to know. So, for example, my reading has been that Hitler was incredibly disgust sensitive. And that's actually why he embarked on this racial cleansing program. I mean, he was obsessed with hygiene and he modeled the Aryan race as a body that was under attack by pathogens. And that's grounded in disgust, not fear. It's a completely different thing. And it, it's really new idea, you know, and that again, partly that that stems out of Jonathan Haidt's work. But anyways, mm. um, so the liberals want open borders. They want information and goods and people to flow freely between categories. They like to mess with categories because they're creative and because they're not high in orderliness, they don't care about the mess that causes. Whereas conservatives, they're worried about information flow and the flow of goods and the flow of people. And it's partly because it, because they're more, their, their concerns about hygiene and purity are elevated. And the problem with all this is like, there's no right answer, eh? Because sometimes opening the borders between things lets a whole burst of new ideas and, and, and new productivity blast forward. But sometimes opening the borders between things is fatal. 
And so one example, and this is why it's associated with disgust and, and the immune system. One example is that, you know, when the, when the Americans, when the Europeans came to the New World, the so-called New World, they brought with them, this was the Spanish, they brought with them smallpox and measles and uh, uh, I don't remember the other one that was so devastating. There were three of them. But anyways, it doesn't matter. Those diseases killed 95% of the indigenous population over the next couple hundred years so that by the time the pilgrims arrived in in the U.S., there were so few natives that they were actually happy to see them because they couldn't get their crops off. So many of them had died. And so, and here's another really interesting fact. So this was published in a journal uh, called Plaus One a few years ago, and it was staggering finding as far as I was concerned. The, the, the researchers went around a variety of different countries and also within countries looking at the presence of infectious pathogens. And there was a very tight correlation between the presence of infectious pathogens and the authoritarian right-wing views of the population at the local level. And the correlation was very high. And so conservatism is an attempt to border and protect all the way from the biological level through the category level right up to the political level. It's a really fundamental thing. And the liberals are the opposite. They want things to be loose and flow. And, well, yes, and, and because the liberals basically say, well, look, the risk of contact with the novel out is, is less than the advantages that that contact will bring. And the conservatives say, not so fast. Sometimes when you mess around with contact, concepts, and the political structure, and the borders, all hell breaks loose and you die. Mm. And those are both correct. And so the, what the political discussion is does, in some sense, is keep the dialogue between those two opposing correct viewpoints. They're both correct, even though they're opposing. The political dialogue keeps the discussion between those positions going. And it's necessary because that helps orient society. And so, sorry, that's a bit long-winded, but it's... No problem, it's, Professor. It's very important to. It's it's, it's so ra- radical that set of ideas that, and it and it's and you know I just recently put together the connection between disgust and orderliness and conservatism and, and liberalism and borders partly because that was such an issue. It's such an issue now. Like Trump wants to build a wall, you know, between the U.S. and Mexico, and the debate going on in Europe is all about borders, man. It's it's about borders and. Yeah. And and the secondary discussion, of course, is how many immigrants can be pulled into a country without the conceptual structures of that country decomposing. And and that's a perfectly reasonable debate to have. But it's a rough one, man. It's a rough one. And it's not a debate the, the radical left wants to engage in at all because they regard the idea of tight, closed borders as bigoted and racist. So, well, well, Professor, I mean, that, that is the, 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 the crux of the argument here in a way, because through, through this bill, and unfortunately it is, it has to do with trans people, where, which, the, and the social justice left have, have mart, you know, have made these people martyrs in a way, even though some of them don't want to be martyrs at all. You're using yes, the exa- most of them, in fact. Yes. You're using this bill as an example of, of this massive ideological conflict. Which, which has repercussions for, for, for the world over and Western culture, maybe specifically. 
Um, so is yes, that, well, is that why you're well, fighting the bulls so? Yes, yes, definitely. Rapidly, the, so to speak. The, well, the the pronoun issue is, it's look, every major conflict, let's say, manifests itself in trivial ways. So, for example, in, within the confines of a family, you know, if you have a dispute with a family member, it can often break out over something that's apparently too trivial to be noticed. You know, and, and then you start fighting about it and you think, well, if you if you have any sense, you think, well, I don't think that's really what we're fighting about. And so then you have a discussion with the person that you have a disagreement with about what exactly it is you're fighting about. And then all hell breaks loose because, you know, maybe you're fighting about your whole marriage, you know, or maybe you're fighting about someone's proclivity for infidelity or you're fighting about how you hate your wife's family and why. And like, you know, mm, you, you, yes. you, you look beneath the surface of the precipitating event and there's a massive underbelly, yeah. an unconscious underbelly of unresolved and unformulated problems. And so the issue here is, well, how important is this bill? How or how ill-advised it is or how necessary it is. But, but, that, see, if it was only about that bill, who cares about Bill C-16 in Canada? Like, who cares? And who cares about the fact that I made some little videos in the middle of the night because I was trying to sort out my ideas about political correctness? It's like, well, apparently, lots of people yeah. care because well, it's been a... A lot, well, of, vote, a lot of voters in, in America seem to care, and a whole bunch of people in the UK seem to care, uh, um, one could argue, with regards to Brexit, uh, and we've got similar problems in South Africa. When I say problems, uh, we also have a human rights um, uh, commission. Kangaroo court. Um, similar thing. It's actually, I think it's modeled on the Canadian model because a lot of our constitution was taken from, from Canadian kind of um, law. Um, and, there, and there's now a, a proposed hate speech bill. Uh, in South Africa, which will sort of double down on um, our uh, existent hate speech laws, which are already um, archaic. Um, I, I'm just wondering. Yes, well, it, so yeah. so well, so that's exactly it. It's that you know I've been puzzling out why in the world this caused such conflict because, well, it's just been it's crazy. I mean, the the number of views say on YouTube regarding this particular issue are certainly up in the not multi-digit millions, low-digit millions. And then the Joe Rogan podcast has got about a million and one, 1.1 million views and about 7 million downloads. And, you know, I went to L.A. recently, which is a long way from me. It's 3,000 3, miles away. And also into Northern California. And people recognized me on the street. It was like, it was crazy, you know. Um, and that means something's going on. And it also means that I touched it, yeah. you know, like I touched a live wire. And I think the reason for that was because I explained a bit about the general context, but I also said there was something specific that I would not do. And so in order to to bring the general up for discussion, it looks like you have to unite it with the specific. And that sort of makes an interesting story, that way of thinking about it. And it's an emblematic story. And so I produced around myself a story that was emblematic of a very, very deep conflict. And part of the conflict is the biological conflict that I just described between temperaments. But then there's 
an ideological overlay on top of that, and that's basically the conflict between, I would say, postmodernism nested in neo-Marxism and the Western Enlightenment. That's basically the battle, and that is like that's a battle, that's a war. It really is, and I would say the postmodern slash neo-Marxist types already occupy, let's say, a third to a half of the of the universities. They basically dominate, certainly, I would say, the administration, even perhaps more so than the faculty. And they also dominate all the disciplines that don't have a solid empirical grounding. The sciences so far have been relatively immune, but that's 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 not going to last. The biologists are are, are going to find themselves yeah. in trouble soon because – it's not yep. immune yet. Uh, we already have uh, limitations on research in terms of uh, research with regards to differences between genders or, or um, sexes in, in the medical sciences, um, and that's already being limited. Um, this is worldwide. Well, so, I mean, let's not forget that this our country, South Africa, produced the very famous Science Must Fall video. Did you? Right, yes, which, exactly. Which you, well, and, which you shared on Facebook, so I know that you have seen it. Oh, um, yes, yes, so yes. That, and, and it's it, not out of their sights yet. No, no, definitely not. And the thing is, the radical postmodernists, who, who, by the way, have quite a coherent philosophy and are also correct about some important things, although, you know, being really correct about one thing <laughs> and then not paying attention to a whole bunch of other things is not a very good way of being correct. But... Postmodernism has to be dealt with seriously. There's a reason that it's invaded the universities, apart from the fact that it it also aligned itself very early with Marxism, and that gave the 60s radicals, who were already fairly dominant on the campus, an easy way out of the of having to deal with the catastrophes of of the communist states like the Soviet Union and China. They just it was just a sleight of hand. They started talking about power and identity instead of about economic interests, which is partly why the Democrats lost the election in the U.S., because they weren't representing the working class anymore, not in the least. Uh, and so they got brutally punished for that and, and for good reason. But the thing about the postmodernists, and, and, and this is something that people don't realize, is that two things that are worth talking about. The first thing is, is they're stuck on this idea that everything is interpreted, including facts, including scientific facts. And the thing is, there's truth to that. There's truth to that. Because data does not speak for itself, and you have to interpret it within a framework. Well, and then the postmodernist claim is, well, what framework should dominate? And how do you know that's the correct framework? And that's the ultimate philosophical question, you might say. And and if if data can't be interpreted without a framework how do you know that you even have what you have in your hands is a fact if it's subject to interpretation and if it's subject to interpretation as a fact what makes it different from just an opinion and you know those are those are tough questions and there are answers to them but they're not simple and then it so then the postmodernist answer to, to all of that is and this is because it's nested inside marxism because you might say well if the postmodernists don't believe in, they don't believe in an overarching uniting narrative, that's for sure. So, like they object to the melting pot idea in the US. They, they, they criticize the idea of unifying narratives. But oddly enough, they will allow the unifying narrative of 
racial, gender, yeah. and sex Isn't that as intersectionality? Identities. Isn't that the whole yes. idea behind intersectionality? Yes, exactly. And But you might say, well, if they don't believe in facts and they don't believe in narratives of union, why the hell do they believe in race and gender and sexuality? And and the answer to that is, well, they, they leap out of their postmodernism into their Marxism. And they... They believe that they believe that the category structures that people use are reflections of their power hierarchy. The categories are constructed by those who dominate that power hierarchy. And the only reason they use those category structures is to maintain their power, sociological and economic. And so the postmodernists, as neo-Marxists, turn the world into a Hobbesian nightmare of groups that are oppressor versus oppressed. Mm. And and they allow that to be a valid narrative, even though from a postmodern perspective it isn't, but it is from a Marxist perspective. And so they don't care, that, and they also don't care that it's internally incoherent. They don't care that those groups are, are going to fight with each other like mad because they really, like, you know, gay men and, and uh, radical lesbian women really don't have that much in common. So they're going to fracture along that line. And, mm. of course, the feminists are fracturing like mad, partly because they don't all agree with the transsexuals. And so, you know, to unite as the oppressed does not make you a homogenous group. And that's also why the LBGT um, the acronym mon- yeah. keeps growing and growing and growing and growing, you know. So anyways... That's that's the intellectual war, and 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 so it's group identity, and it's oppressed versus victim, and but it's more than that, you see, because the postmodernists, you said the radical lefties won't come on your show. Well, what you have to understand is they do not believe in dialogue. Now, dialogue is dia, duo, logic, logos. Yes. Okay. Well, Derrida, who's the leader of the postmodernists, basically, said that the West was logocentric. And more so, he said it was fellow logocentric, as in phallus. And so it was male-dominated. It was dominated by this idea of logic. And he just assumed that that was all part of the power play on the part of the dominant group. And so the reason the, the radical lefties don't engage in dialogue is, first of all, they don't believe in logic. Second, they don't believe in coherence. Third, they don't believe in science. And they do not believe that groups of different power you know, hierarchies of power can communicate and reach consensus. They don't believe any of that. So why the hell are they going to talk? They're not going to talk. But that, but so that, that flies in the face of, of hundreds of years of, of uh, how can I explain? I mean, dialogue is the way we get social to evolution. The, the purity of ideas, so to speak. Without dialogue, how do you progress as a, as a society you in don't, terms of new ideas? You don't. You don't progress. Is that, is but that what but you want, have though? to. Yes, it's it's what they want. Oh. Look, I mean, all you have to do often when you're confused about what people are doing, you just have to read what they write. They just tell you what they're doing. <laughs> now, the so let's go, we'll f- fall back into the neo-Marxist postmodern terminology, and I'll I'll act as an advocate for that viewpoint. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So basically, Western civilization is a patriarchy. Okay, mm-hmm. And it's a racially dominated patriarchy. 
And it's basically an oppressive structure. And it's it's justified from within by the people who occupy positions of power using their support for such ideas as free speech. And that's a mask for the power play that's actually going on. And it's the war of all. It's the war of all groups against all other groups. And so the patriarchy is to be dismantled and 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 dismantled completely. And you might say, well, we'll replace it. Well, the postmodernists have no answer to that because they don't believe in overarching narratives. But that's why they nested their philosophy inside Marxism, because the Marxist ideal is equality of outcome. That's what equity is. That's the code Equity is a code word for equality of outcome. So it's, it's radical Marxism, actually. And, and they don't care about the fact that, you know, someone has to figure out how to determine whether the outcomes are equal, which is impossible. It's impossible. And they also don't care that the groups of people are fractionable right down to the level of the individual. So you can't, you know, say, well, we got to make sure that, you know, uh, Hispanic people make the same amount of money and occupy the same positions of power as Caucasians because there's a lot of different kinds of Caucasians who have a lot of different backgrounds. There's the rural poor and there's Eastern Europeans and there's, you know, they did, there's important distinctions yeah, to be but, made by. But in creating they don't care about it. the hierarchy, there are no distinctions for them. So, you know, in the patriarchy right. and, and, you know, in, in the West where white people are essentially the oppressor and anyone else is the oppressed, all white people are uniform and essentially a homogenous group. Yeah, except the women. Yeah, the well, women are, are more oppressed than the men, but those women are more oppressed than, say, men who are, who are Hispanic or, yeah. or, or of some, of some okay. marginalized group. Yeah, can we can we get to a little bit more on the Marxism? I know you understand the history very deeply, um, and can you give some background into the development of that and how we get to a point? Um, you know, Marxism starts off quite a long time back, and we get to the point now where some eighteen-year-old on a college campus seems to buy into this whole movement. They wouldn't probably. Recognize words like postmodernism. They may not even recognize the word Marxism, although they they quickly seem to pick up on that it means something good in in terms of in their perspective of the world. Um, but can we go back to how it all starts? Um, I know you've spoken a little bit about the evils of it. I'd like to 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 make that quite clear, and then also how we get to this point of people who know nothing of this history and how toxic it is um, now pushing it forward as the narrative by which we should all live by. Right. Okay. So, so, so the first thing we'll do is we'll cap off the last question. And, you know, the last question was, well, what are these people up to? How does society progress forward if there's no dialogue? And the answer to that question was, don't underestimate their revolutionary aims. When the women's studies people and the ethnic studies people and gender studies people say that the patriarchy needs to be decomposed, they mean it. They are absolutely dead serious about that. And they mean at every level, not only at the level of the power structure in politics, but at the level of the power structure in business, family, and even at the category level. They really mean they want to dismantle it. And that's what they're training people to do. All of those, all of those disciplines are activist disciplines and they've trained hundreds of thousands of people and they've trained them 
I know it sounds like a paranoid conspiracy, <laughs> but all you have to do is go look at the damn websites. They tell you what they're doing. And, and they know how to – many, many organizations now are dominated by social justice warriors. I mean, even the Law Society here in, in Ontario has now decided that because there's disproportionate – like the, the proportions of representations – demographically mm. within law in yeah. Ontario yeah. do not match the population. I mean, there's actually more Asians than you would expect. There's obviously more people who are Jewish than you would expect. And then, of course, there's more Caucasians and there's fewer Native Americans. And and, and so the presupposition is, well, that shows absolutely that the structure is racist and that all the people who are within it are racist. And they use this idea of unconscious bias, which is based on appalling overreach of, of social psych, psychological principles, um, partly to be laid at the feet of Mazarin Banaji and, and Tony Greenwald. And Mazarin Banaji is an avowed, she's a radical leftist. And the fact that her research is being used to indicate that the dominant, you know, group in society is intrinsically racist at the unconscious level is just fine with her because it fits her political motivations. And the idea that we can be educated because of our unconscious biases is Jesus. If you want a dangerous idea, well, for you couldn't get a more dangerous idea than that because you're actually guilty for what you can't help thinking. Yeah. That's the claim. And then the next claim is that we can educate you out of that, which we can't. There is no evidence whatsoever that these training programs to reduce unconscious bias do anything except perhaps make people more prejudiced because they're angry at being at because, being because uh, we, we don't fully understand reasons. unconscious bias either, do we? We don't understand it at all. And the test that's used, the implicit association test, first of all, it only weakly predicts actual behavior, which is a big problem because that's a validity problem. And the second problem is, is if you give the test to the same person twice with some time between them, the results are quite different. And so we're using this test that doesn't meet the standards for a diagnostic test by any stretch of the imagination invented by social psychologists, not clinical psychologists who are, who are, uh, what would you say, qualified to do this. Mm. And, and well, so with the law society, for example, it became dominated by the social justice warrior types. And now they're pushing the lawyers in Ontario basically to admit that they're all racists and to undergo unconscious bias training. And then the next thing will be to analyze the structure of the legal profession. And they say this is what they're doing. The, the people, the human resources department at the University of Toronto put their staff through mandatory unconscious bias training. And one of the claims of the people who was was doing the training because I got a hold of the training material was that equity means equality of outcome. And if a organization doesn't show equality of outcome across the major demographic groups, then it is corrupt and racist. And the goal of the organization has to be to redress that. And your job as a member of that organization fundamentally is to fight against that, that racism and, Make the adjustment until equality of outcome has been attained, and that's what yeah. the human resources well, department is training its staff. You would love it's South crazy. Africa. We uh, we have laws saying that our companies need to um, adjust demographics um, accordingly. Obviously, we've got a, a history to deal with, um, and so that's trying to address some of those issues. But 
to the point that it gets beyond ridiculous, where, where the same thing, you would have a group of people, but because it doesn't match exact demographics in the society, that makes the company automatically racist and automatically yes, well, guilty of well, racist and, practice. Well, sure. And the other thing, say, in the Ontario legislation that I always, are also seriously objected to was the – so in Ontario now, in the province that I live in, which is the largest, most populous – it's the most populous province of Canada. Um, in Ontario, if you're an employer, you are responsible for the actions or inactions of your employees, all of them. Um, if they say or do accidentally on or on purpose <laughs> anything that's offensive, even if no one complains about it. That's that's the case. That's the case. And so you think, well, why would anyone write a law like that? Well, the answer is the postmodern neo-Marxist radicals who are formulating policy are anti-capitalist. They hate businesses. They hate business people. And if they believe that they're corrupt and destructive. And so if they produce a piece of legislation that tangles them up in the legal system, which is exactly what this legislation is designed to do, then so much the better. You know, and Professor, I mean, I, I'm not surprised by the stupidity of, of laws and the stupidity of people in general in wanting to, to, to obtain power through, through some means or another. Why has the opposition to the radical left been so silent for the past three, four decades? What, what, is, what, what, what has it taken? Why, why, well, the, why, has, why has there been silence? Well, first of all, you know, you you made comments about the stupidity of people, and I actually think that's the wrong way to go about it, because the the postmodern neo-Marxist claims are very internally consistent. They're very logical, and they're thoroughly thought through. Now, the problem is, is that the axioms on which they're based are untenable, and that was what was demonstrated by, in the Soviet Union and in communist China and in North Korea. But, of course, the people... First of all, young people know nothing about that because they're yeah. not taught any history of that. And second, the apologists for the Marxists, who for the communists, who I regard basically as no better than the apologists for the Nazis. I truly believe that. Um, they say, oh, that wasn't real Marxism. Yeah, it's, ne- what it's, well, it's never real that, Marxism or real socialism. Well, they don't have, they don't have objective right. standards, so they will never be real Marxism anyway. Well, it, no, no, because it's a utopian dream and, and it's an impossible utopian dream. But what they mean by that, and this is where the where arrogance and lack of historical knowledge plays an immense role, is what a person who says that truly means is that if, if, if that person as an individual was suddenly elevated to the position of supreme power, that they're omniscient understanding of the principles of Marxism would usher in a new utopian age and that they wouldn't fall prey to any of the corruption that characterized these massive states. It's it's an insanely arrogant and misinformed position. And it's, but, you know, I, I teach my second year students in psychology about the Gulag Archipelago under the existentialist part of my psychology course, and they don't know anything about it. They don't know that, like, between, you know, the reasonable estimates look like about 30 million people died between 1919 and 1959 because of internal repression. And God only knows how many died in China. 
you know, the estimates vary widely, but it was certainly at least 50 million people. Um, and, you know, that doesn't include the people who were mopped up after the Americans pulled out of Southeast Asia. And, and it's just a catastrophe. And, but, yeah. but they don't know that. Like Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, which I would recommend to all of your listeners, that's the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He documented in exquisite detail in three massive volumes that, that are like one long scream. It's an intense book. He documented exactly how the Marxist doctrines, as Marxist doctrines, led to the establishment of the laws that starved and killed millions of people in the Soviet Union. And so, and, and Solzhenitsyn, he has the defin, he made the definitive response to that. He won a Nobel Prize for it. It demolished the credibility, whatever was remaining of the Soviet Union. But, you know, and even the French Marxists had to stop being communists at that point because the evidence for the pathology of the system was so overwhelming that even a French intellectual had to admit that it was true. But that's all ancient history now. But Professor, I mean, sorry to, to interrupt you. I, what, what is your, your, your most fundamental fear? Is your fundamental fear that this will could happen again if, if, if Marxism is left uh, unhindered? Or do you use those examples to show how poisonous the ideology is? Or it could be a combination of both. Uh, but do you feel well, that Soviet Union could arise in, in a different manner within the future? Well, it is arising to some degree insofar yeah. as these these principles are infiltrating our institutions and the law. And, you know, the law, a law is a virus. You Like, for example, one of the things that's happened in the background of Bill C-16, and this is a hard thing for people to grapple with, and ordinary people wouldn't notice except emotionally that this sort of thing is happening. So... In Ontario and, and soon in Canada and already in many provinces, it's doctrine that biological sex, gender identity, gender expression, and sexual preference are totally independent of one another, completely independent of one another. That's what the law claims. And to deny that, well, is illegal in some manner if pursued in some way. Now, it isn't, it hasn't come to that yet, but it's in the law. Now, the problem with that is that it's false. There isn't a reputable scientist on, with any knowledge of biology whatsoever who would ever make the claim that biological sex and gender identity vary independently. Yeah. That doesn't mean there aren't, and this is, you know, why I've been called a transphobe and a bigot. A bigot. It's like, the observation that there are some people and a very small minority, I might add, whose, whose biological sex, which is now called gender assigned at birth, mm. by the way, mm. um, are at odds with their, uh, with their felt gender identity. It's like, yes, that's true. And it's been true as far back as we know. But the fact that there are exceptions to the rule when the rule applies 99.97% of the time, which is about approximately right for the match between biological sex and gender identity, because it's about one in 300. Of course, you know, the people pushing the transgender ideology yeah, they, would 
ar- argue that there's more, but it doesn't matter. Okay, so fine. Let's say one percent, which is way too high, but I'm I'm perfectly willing to allow for that at the moment. It's still ninety nine percent in a lot in in alignment, and to and to claim that that constitutes independent variation is it's actually a falsehood, and it's it's one that's necessary for the radical social constructionists, and those are postmodern types. They, they say, look, all of your identity is socially constructed, every single bit of it. And that's also a Marxist claim because the Marxists believed that human beings were, had no essential nature and that can be formed and reshaped by the will of the state. And so, and so that's written into the law in Canada already. And believe me, it's coming your way. It's being taught to students in the elementary schools because the, one of the most corrupt disciplines, there are a number of them, um, the gender studies types, that whole industry is absolutely corrupt intellectually. They have no methodology, they have nothing but ideology, and they produce activists. Hmm. Um, sociology, it's a catastrophe. Education, it's a catastrophe. Literature, it's all gone postmodern. Journalism. Um, yeah, well, increasingly, law is increasingly dominated by at the top by people who have these attitudes, and th- they have a completely different attitude towards the law, by the way, because they don't believe in because they don't believe in the logos, the logic, the the, the ability for dialogue. Um, they believe that the law is nothing but a tool that can be used for political purposes, and and so you know that and that's a perfectly reasonable postmodern claim i mean that the human rights tribunal in ontario in its in its documentation of its powers states explicitly that they're allowed to um uh i have got to get this terminology exactly right ignore legal precedent and suspend normal, normal ju- ju- jurisprudential yes exactly and they also they also use preponderance of evidence instead of presumption of innocence and in 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 the universities increasingly if you're accused of of sexual harassment which has become an extraordinarily broad category and is all equivalent to rape as far as the radical social justice types are concerned and if you're accused of that you don't get to face your accuser the universities are being forced to establish what are essentially kangaroo courts for the pursuit of sexual harassment cases and the government has already mandated that and so, well, and so that, I mean, the, to make the universities into a judicial system is absolutely insane. It's yeah. absolutely insane. But but a, so, a matter of time before those people leave the universities and the real judicial system potentially is um, sort of colonized correct. in the same way. Well, corrupted. in Canada, like one of the things the federal government announced about two months ago which no one really noticed because because nobody knows about this sort of thing, you know. And Canadians are used to Canada just working. It just works. There's no reason to worry about politics, really. Like, the legal structure is very solid. It's extraordinarily peaceful here. It's very, very productive. Like, we, our political battles are, apart from separatism, which is now a defunct problem, it's like, as far as countries with problems go, we don't even register I mean, we've got our problems, but, and so Canadians are just, they just believe that everything's okay. And that's because it has been okay for a very long time. But the federal government already announced that 
They're going to select members of the judiciary essentially on social justice principles so that if you're a candidate, you have to include in your dossier your your identity so so that the imbalance can be redressed according to the categories of the social justice warriors, racial and sexual, and that the committees that select the judges will have to undergo mandatory training for unconscious bias reduction. Like, what the hell? It's insane. Yeah, I think we're with you on that. No, I mean, we, uh, can, absolutely. Yeah, go can ahead. I ask you, in terms of, I mean, you say it's insane, and, and uh, you know, that's your background. You're, you're a clinical psychologist. Um, how much of the stuff we're seeing, I, I mean, I know you're not allowed to refer to anyone as being, you know, any kind of this stuff being mental illness, any kind of this stuff being, you know, thinking irrationally in, in, in to the extent that a lot of the social justice is, um, seems to me to be very unwell people um, that I think decades ago we might have said this is not the correct way to think and we might have said you know go for therapy or or speak to someone or do something about it okay it's a good question um you know the first thing we might note is that troubled people are overall more likely to be extreme in their views and that can happen on the right as well as on the left and i think that's just a truism i mean certainly it's the case that you know, the suicide bombers, for example, that ISIS produces, they're often people who are very unstable and isolated. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they can be indoctrinated into the cult with very little effort. Um, the research we've conducted so far on politically, on the politically correct authoritarian types, because they're different than the more liberal types, has indicated that they have a higher rate of psychiatric diagnosis than and symptoms of personality disorder than than the PC liberals or people who belong to more mainstream political affiliations. But what you want to understand is that you know I think and I think the reason for that is is that the 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 cult like belongingness that goes along with extremism provides people who are misplaced with a with a, a home and a community. Um, and so but the the logic of their thinking is by no means irrational. It's not r- irrational at all. It's perfectly 100% rational, just like the communist doctrines were rational. The problem is, is that the axioms are wrong. So the based. fundamental, you know, Marxist axiom is something like from each according to his ability to each according to his need, which sounds really nice, you know, it, and it's certainly attractive to, you know, a compassionate undergraduate who knows nothing about history. It's like, well, yeah, people have needs, they should be met. And yes, people have abilities and they should, you know, they should manifest themselves in society. They don't understand the fundamental problem, which is how do you assess and quantify need which is a staggeringly, the market does that. That that's what a free market does. It might do it imperfectly, and it does. But it's incalculable. It's an it's an incalculable problem. You cannot compute an answer because you have to figure out how to first of all categorize need, need for education, need for healthcare, need for food, need for clothing, need for shelter, need for love, need for family, need for employment, like. You can multiply those needs forever. And then 
not only do you have to calculate all those needs, you have to rank order them. Because, like, let's say I have a son who's a genius, and he has, um, oh, maybe he has a, um, he 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 has an amputated foot. Yeah. And and he's a mathematical genius, and we don't have quite enough money, but he needs to go to Harvard because that's that's the right place for that kid. And so, and then somebody else has a kid who's you know got an illness of some sort um, who isn't who isn't a mathematical genius, who has a sick sibling and who needs emergency medical treatment. It's like, okay, whose need predominates? And worse, who is going to decide? That's the killer, man. Who's going to take on the responsibility for that? And like, it's like a, it's, it's a pricing problem. That's part of it. And you know, the central, there were central committees in the Soviet Union who were trying to figure out how to price commodities which is impossible, yeah. by the way. Like yeah. it's, it's almost it's almost impossible to price one new product. You should just try it, because cheap isn't necessarily the right answer. Free isn't necessarily the right answer. Sometimes really expensive is the right answer, and you have to experiment and find that what also, the price is that the market will accept. You, but also, as soon as you manipulate, um, it 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 kind of. Um you you lose on 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 another side. So if you you price well, exactly. it one way, it, the, just another commodity will go the other way. That's or well, exa- the resource exactly that right. makes that commodity. Yes, yes. I mean, exactly. And well, what happened in the Soviet Union was they had pricing committees, and those damn pricing committees were making tens of thousands of pricing decisions a day, and every single one of them was wrong. You know, like how much should a nail cost? Yeah. Well, impossible to know, figure out. You can't figure it out. There's there's no way of figuring it out. And the answer is it should cost what people will pay for it. Indeed. That's it. That's the answer. That's the only answer. And that's a free market answer. And that's Adam Smith's idea. But, but you know, you actually have to think a lot about the complexity of the world to get back to Adam Smith. And believe me, it's not as if students in most, certainly not in the disciplines that I listed, I should have put social work in there too because it's just absolutely <laughs> pathological. Um, so, Professor, if I may interject, please. So, we have done fifty-five minutes of of the fundamental problem we're facing in Western culture. It's a clash of yes. ideology. Uh, one ideology is internally lo- logical but deeply destructive through precedent. The other one is a bit cowardly and is afraid of being called names. Yes. What can people on our side, so to speak, what can we do in the future or starting today, for example, that can actively hinder this this destructive ideology from furthering its cause? And I want to get a bit into your, 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 um, what's it called? Your self-authoring suite. Yeah. you, You made a point once whereby it's very simple to read this quote, um, People try to change the world, but they don't try to change themselves. Yes. So yes. So, well, so so. So how do we find? This? Okay, fine. That's a great question. Well, when I wrote my first book, um, it's the only one I've published so far. Although I have one coming out in 2018, um, I was trying to figure out. Well, so the basic problem was is that we need group identity because it 
It unifies our perceptions, enables us to cooperate and compete peacefully, and allows us to predict one another, which is absolutely important. So your belief system doesn't regulate your emotions. What happens is, is it's the match between your belief system and the actions of the people around you who are in that same belief system. They act it out. Everyone perceives the world a certain way within a certain culture, and everyone acts that way as well. And so then as long as those two things match, the people can get along. And and if they don't match, then there's conflict, and it has to be talked out or, or fought out. And so the problem is, is that people need to belong to a group, but then group conflict emerges from that. And we're so technologically powerful now that serious group conflict well, we just can't do it. We'll, we'll just destroy each other. And so the group identity thing is problematic. But if you drop your group identity, then you fall into a kind of a psychological and social chaos. And, and that in there is nihilism and hopelessness and the degeneration of society. It's also a catastrophe. It's so like you've got one sort of hell on one side and another sort of hell on the other. And for a long time, I thought that was just hopeless. There was just no way out of that conundrum. Um, but then I realized, and that was partly from studying mythology and, and religion and from reading Carl Jung and also from reading Solzhenitsyn and Viktor Frankl and people who concentrated a lot on individual responsibility and, and who identified the lie as the central form of political pathology. Because in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, Everyone lied to each other all the time about absolutely everything. And that, I mean, one out of three people in East Germany was a government informer. And you were never allowed to say what was actually going on. And so pathological political systems are produced and maintained by individuals who do not, who are willing to lie, often out of fear. It's not like they don't have a good reason. Mm. It's not just that they're moral cowards. Um, it's that they have good reason to lie, but you don't get to lie. You don't, it, it destroys, the, it destroys you because it weakens you because you start living in a false world. And because you're not facing the world, you don't, you're not responding to challenges and growing. And so you get weaker and more likely to lie. And then the lie infects your family because no one can trust each other. And then it infects the community and then it affects the state. And so the cardinal principle first of all is don't lie or tell the truth now i learned as well that that's the central injunction that's the central western injunction because the west is based on respect for logos and that's partly instantiated in christianity because logos is the christ is the embodiment of logos symbolically speaking so what he represents is the person who tells the truth at at any cost and it's the central it's it's truth oriented towards the good that's the central principle of christianity and it emerged that idea emerged long before christianity emerged you can trace it all the way back to the mesopotamians in in the earliest stories that we have because their central god marduk had eyes all the way around his head so, so he could pay attention um, like the Egyptian god Horus, who's a falcon and an eye, mm. the, you know, the famous yeah. eye of Horus, means pay attention. And Marduk also spoke magic words. He, he spoke the words that would turn order into chaos and, and the reverse. 
And so that's one of the birthplaces of the idea of the logos. And the logos is clear, accurate, verbal communication. And it's speech. It's speech, not writing and not thinking. And the reason for that is that when you think or write, you're subject to all of your own biases and your ignorance. No matter how hard you try to verify the situation, you're, you're, you're stymied by your own inadequacy, both conceptually and morally. But when you speak publicly, then people can correct your speech. They can object. They can tell you where you're wrong and where you might become more clear-headed. And, and it's in that public dialogue, which is dialogue, logos, shared logos is what that means, that the truth can emerge. And that's the fundamental principle of Western civilization. And so what people have to do, as far as I'm concerned, is they have to, you hear everyone yelling about rights. It's yeah. like, quit it, quit it. If anyone, if anyone talks to you about rights and they don't spend an equal amount of time talking to you about responsibility, then they're, they're thieves because every right they attain is attained at the cost of someone else's responsibility. And so, you know, this is, I invited a student recently contacted me who's a representative of the LBGT community at a university in the United States and they wanted to meet me and I suggested that we had a Skype have a Skype conversation and record it. Now, I don't know if the student will agree because it's a lot to agree to, but, and the person was asking me, well, what, what can the LGBT community do, for example, to mitigate against this intrusion into the free speech territory? You know, because it was certainly free speech that allowed those communities to make whatever gains in terms of recognition that they have gained. And I was thinking about that and I thought, well, why don't people who want more rights start manifesting more responsibility? You know, like if the LBGT community was seen to bear more than its fair share of the load of society and responsibility, if they were volunteering in hospitals, if they were, if they were serving the community assiduously, then 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 they would have paid the price for their recognition as included citizens. And so, and I think that that works for everyone on an individual level. It's like, pick up your goddamn load, hmm. you know, and that, that's symbolically represented in Christianity by the cross that represents suffering. It's bear the suffering of the world on your shoulders and take responsibility for it. It's Atlas as well. And, and, and so enough about rights already. You know, and it's not like people aren't oppressed. They are oppressed. Many, many people. But to turn the world into a narrative of oppressor and victim just means to ensure, to absolutely ensure conflict. And we know that from studying the initiations of genocide, like it happened in Rwanda, is the narrative turned into oppressor and victim. And the narrative was, well, we better get them before they get us. And so... And, you know, once that starts, it, it can spiral out of control very, very, very rapidly. So the self-authoring suite, so that's at selfauthoring.com, helps people write about their past and clear that up and their present personality and straighten that out to identify their virtues and their faults. And then it asks them to write about their future. These are three, four different programs. 
And the future authoring program asks you to envision what your life could be three to five years down the road if you were taking care of yourself properly and you had what would be good for you, like you were taking care of someone else. So you have to develop a vision of that, and then you have to develop a counter vision, which is, all right, let your resentments and hatreds and inadequacies and moral flaws and bitterness and bad habits manifest themselves fully and describe what sort of hell you're going to be in five years from now. And then you know what to avoid and you know where to go. And so then you're oriented properly in the world. Then your life becomes meaningful because you need that orientation to make your life meaningful. And then it asks you to detail out a plan to obtain that vision and to stay away from hell. And so we've used that now on thousands of university students, mostly in Europe, mostly in Holland. And it's raised their academic performance about 20% and decreased their dropout about 20 to 25%. And we've replicated that in Canada. But the coolest thing, we just couldn't believe this, was that it had an overwhelmingly positive effect on minority groups. You know, and people always think that the problem with minority groups integrating is a sociological problem, right, or a political problem. Mm. But in in at the Rotterdam Business School, at the School of Management, Rotterdam School of Management, and um, I'm working with Michaela Shippers there and Ad Sheepers, um, they've been implementing this program, and the University of Amsterdam uses it now too. And what we what we found when we analyzed the 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 um, performance of their students in years preceding the implementation of this program, um, the top performing students were Dutch national women, so basically Caucasian women. And then the next best performing group was Caucasian men. And then the next best performing group was non-Western ethnic minority women. And then the poorest performing group was non-Western ethnic minority men. Mm. And there was a huge difference between the non-Western ethnic minority men and the Dutch women, about 70% in terms of accomplishment. Large, large. So we had all the students do this future authoring program and it elevated the scores of the Dutch women slightly, but there was a ceiling effect. You know, they were already doing pretty well. Yeah. But the non-Western ethnic minority men not only caught up, within two years they were doing slightly better than the women. Yeah. It was like mind-boggling, mind-boggling. And so, you know, one it, of the well, things – Sorry, Professor. Is that just the effect of giving people a, a concrete sense of meaning in their own lives? Is yes, that, is that it's what exactly it is? that. As, sure, look, it um, sounds Nietzsche simple, said, but it's maybe well, not. Well, it's that not easy. simple. It's not simple at all. It, it's, it's very complicated. And, you know, Nietzsche said, he who has a why can bear any how. And, yes. and that's, that's a brilliant, it was a brilliant statement. It's like if you believe that what you're doing is important and meaningful, partly because it steers you away from intense suffering and steers you toward. The good and like we, we ask people when they're writing about their plan, it's like, okay, let's say you, you get what you want, like order it first, make a hierarchy out of it. What's most important to you? What's your plan? How are you going to implement it? What, what are you going to, how are you going to deal with obstacles? How are you going to overcome them? And then we also ask them to write out, okay, look, if you have a good plan and a good goal, and this is like the definition of a good goal because you can define a good goal. You got to think, well, how is it good for me if I was taking care of myself? But how can it be good for me and my family at the same time? And then how can it be good for me and my family 
for a long time, not just in the short term. And then how can it be good for me and my family and my community now, next week, next month, and into the future? So if it's a good goal, you benefit yourself while you're benefiting your family, while you're benefiting your community. And that definitely gives you a sense of meaning because, well, at minimum, you're you're decreasing the net load of human suffering, yeah. if, even if it's just yours and you're bringing peace to your family. And like these are important things. They they. They give responsibility is what gives people a sense of meaning. It's yeah. not happiness, for Christ's sake. Well, but it's not <laughs> happiness. What's your What's your sense of why, for example, the Dutch women um, who would have grown up in essentially a Western society um, with those beliefs, with logos, um, what, what's your view of why they will um, already be closer to achieving um, that sense of prosperity uh, meaning yeah. um, whereas versus people in the non-western um, world what is it that's doing that and is that is that why you know this kind of i think i might be attacked a little bit for this but there's more problems in the non-western world well look there's there's a variety of reasons for problems and and you could say that western oppression is one of those although you'd also have to then say well what has the west done for the world and you know, Everything. we don't have to have that argument. Yeah. Like, it's a mythological truism that every system is a, a combination of a tyrant and a wise king. And, you know, some tilt more towards being a tyrant and some tilt more to be towards a wise king. And, and really that is an existential truism. It's a mythological truism. And the West has no shortage of sins on its shoulders, but it has no shortage of, of accomplishments as well. So, but, I mean, there's many reasons for poverty. Um, certainly corruption is a massive one. Um, I think it's the, I really think it's the only one, to tell you the truth. Because people who are embedded in a culture of trust, like the Japanese, the Japanese are a very good example, and they're a non-Western example, um, although they have a Western constitution. Um, the The default relationship between two Japanese individuals is the presupposition that each of them will act trust in a trustworthy manner. Yeah, with honor. And so that way they can trade with one another. And that's also the default assumption in the West. And, and people who are cynical don't believe this, but all you have to do is think about eBay. eBay is a really good example because it's pretty new. And eBay does not work without trust. And the reason for that is that it, it involves strangers having single interactions, which is exactly the time when you can really screw someone. <laughs> so if you were a venture capitalist hearing eBay described to you for the first time, someone would say, well, look, we're going to set up this universal marketplace where people can sell off their excess uh, material goods to anywhere in the world to anyone. And anybody with, with, with any sense, conservative or liberal, conservative or left wing even would say, well, how naive are you? Like, that's not going to work. The seller is going to sell the person junk. Yeah. And the buyer is going to send a check that bounces. <gasps> and so what happened first with eBay is that there were these escrow companies that offered to guarantee the tr transaction for a fee, like 10%, you know, so you'd, you'd basically they'd either just insure it or you'd send the item to them and the money, they would ensure that both were what they were represented to be and then they would send them on. But what happened was everybody played fair. 
Yeah. Like, you know, if you're on eBay and you don't have a reputation as a seller that's at 99%, no one buys from you. You're just, you're just not doing very well. What is it with people? And I don't, I don't know. It's not fair to, to generalize as people, but um, when you, I find often when I'm having discussions um, with people trying to um, discuss these kinds of topics, uh, the assumption is that humans are innately bad, uh, and that only well, with true. legislation and uh, you know a government and and laws and things we can make them good. Um, oh yeah, it's true. It's it's also a mythological truism. I mean, that's why you have the the ancient narrative of the hostile brothers, Cain and Abel, yeah. for example, Thor and Loki. Um, and then they appear in modern culture all the time. It's uh, Batman and the Joker and Superman and Lex Luthor. And um, there's always a there's always an antithesis at the level of the individual. And it's it's, it's Thomas Hobbes versus Jacques Rousseau. You know, Hobbes basically said, look, if, if you leave people in the state of nature, everybody's hands are around everybody's neck and you need a leviathan. You need a culture to enforce conformity and the rules. And Rousseau said, no, 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 no. Everybody's innately good. Culture is the problem. It's innately evil. And if you just freed people up to be their paradisal self, the world would be a utopia. And and the problem with those two points of view is that they're both true. And that's because culture is a tyrant and a wise king, and the individual is a hero and an adversary at the same time. And that's the line that runs between good and evil in every human being's heart that Solzhenitsyn talks about. And so you have to have social order because people need to be trained and disciplined and buttressed. But you have to have individual freedom because the state gets old and stupid and corrupt and and awake people who are speaking the truth have to update it. And that's the mythological motif of rescuing your father from the underworld, you know, like Pinocchio does, the puppet. The marionette, when he's trying to become real, he has to go down into the chaos and rescue his father. And that what, what that means is that he's revivifying the state, which is what the individual has to do. But he has to start, or she, by getting his or her act together at the personal level. Like, if you're not a well-integrated person, and above all, that means honest and then perhaps articulate, and then caring beyond the, the tiny confines of yourself, but also caring for yourself. If you if you aren't that, then all you can do is go out in the world and wreak havoc. Good intentions be damned. Because you, you believe me, your intentions aren't all good. There's that, God, if 20th century history teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that the individual can be an unbelievably awful force for uh, for the most atrocious acts and that 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 it's normal people who are capable of that and so you have to understand that that's the Jungian idea Carl Jung's idea of, of confronting your own shadow it's like one of the things I try to teach my students and believe and my classes are not safe spaces let me tell you that is I try to help them develop the understanding that if they were in Nazi Germany the probability that they would be a perpetrator rather than a hero is unbelievably high. And and you have to contend with that. You have to know that's true of you. And that's a horrible thing to know. 
And so, you know, people are very resistant to it, but that's part of taking on the responsibility of individual being. It's, it's the primary part. You have to, you have to take, take on moral responsibility for yourself and after yourself as much of the world as you can competently manage. And that's the only way forward as far as I can tell. And so, and the, and the fact that it works for minority students is like, well, I think they, it's very hard if you're a minority student in a new culture to have an integrated narrative because the mere fact that you're operating in a new culture just completely disorients you. And so I think what happens is that the writing forces the orientation and it, like writing is very powerful because when you write things in your own words, you're actually retooling the manner in which you perceive and remember the world. It's very, very powerful. So we know, for example, if you bring people into the lab, imagine you bring a rather uninformed right winger into the lab and you say, okay, um, write 500 words on why capitalism is evil. Uh, I know you don't think it's, it's evil, but you know, just play Try. along. Yeah. And so you give the person beforehand a questionnaire about their political attitudes. And then you have them write this 500 word essay. And, you know, you say, well, make it thoughtful, make it a good argument. And then you bring them back a week later and you give them the same political orientation questionnaire. They all shifted way to the left. And it's because their political philosophy is inarticulate and incoherent. And if they add any articulation to the opposite side, they immediately move in that direction. Is this, is this, so, is this that idea of people don't have ideas, ideas have people? Oh yes, well that's, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely it. I mean, when you hear a hundred people say the same thing, or a thousand people say the same thing, you know that they're possessed. They're possessed by the spirit of that ideology, and they may not know who that spirit is. And this is one of the, you know, Jung, this is Jung's fundamental claim is that Everybody acts out a myth. You can't help it because we're in, we're, we're in the world that's described by myth. Mm. And so you're a battleground between good and evil in your own heart. And then you're embedded in a culture that's both tyrannical and, 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 and offers you security and, and trains you. And, and all of that, you and the culture are embedded in a natural world that's beautiful and, and nourishing and, and provides you with the necessities of life at the same time that it's trying to kill you and take you down at every moment. <laughs> and so it's this paradoxical reality that we inhabit. And, you know, you play out those roles. You know, maybe you're an adversary because you're resentful and you want to bring society to a shuddering halt because you see it as nothing but a tyranny. Or you see human beings as rapacious uh, monsters who are hell-bent on the destruction of like an Edenic paradise. You know, that's kind of the, that's the underlying environmentalist mythos in its, in its extreme form. So, so, well, part of, anyways, back to the idea of the individual is that you, you, you have to balance all those forces in, in your own life. And then you have to make a decision about whether you're aiming up or down. And, if you think about what down means, you're much less likely to aim at it. But you have to make it personal. It's mm. like, okay, I could find myself in hell in five years. And it would feel like an eternal place because when you're suffering bitterly 
and you're in pain and you're regretful, then every second lasts forever. And so you don't want to be there, man. You don't want to be there. And so wherever you want to be is as far away from that as possible. And that can help you start figuring out what the good might be. And, and Professor, sorry, it, it comes into my, my final question for you today. Okay. When you, when you first started arguing against a bill C-16 in particular, but more broadly what we were discussing, did you feel that you were in hell, metaphorically, and have you been surprised by the reaction you have received? Well, I've been, absolutely, I've been absolutely stunned by the reaction, and, and I mean that. I, I feel like I – one time I was in Mexico, you know, and on a beach, and it was a really steep beach, and and it was on the Pacific coast, and the waves were rolling in, and they were like 15 feet high. If it would have been a North American beach, it would have been closed, but being it was Mexico, there wasn't even any lifeguards around, so we got to go play in the 15-foot waves which was very dangerous, but really fun. And yeah. I didn't really know how what to do about these damn waves to begin with. So I went out there and like one would hit me and just slam me onto the sand, just just like a big hand, whap. And, and so that was exhilarating and also exhausting. You could only do that about four times before you could barely drag yourself out of the water. <laughs> and then one time I swam, swam out a little bit farther. I kind of dove into the wave, which is what you should do instead of just letting it wallop you. I learned that fairly quickly. And the wave was tall enough, so it flipped me 360 degrees standing. So that was pretty weird, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you just feel the elemental force of the waves. And, uh, and, and then, you know, you wash out back on the beach exhausted. And that's exactly the situation that I'm in. It's like, what the hell happened? It, uh, it's, you know, what my son and I calculated about a month and a half ago that 180 separate newspaper articles had been published about this. And it was like news in Canada. You know, I didn't get, it wasn't 15 minutes of fame. It's like, well, it's still going on. I'm talking to you guys in Africa. It's like, what the hell is going on? And I'm receiving dozens of letters a day from people who are concerned about these issues and who've been affected by them. And I have 150,000 YouTube subscribers now, which is when I put up a lecture, like I put up some lectures on Monday, it's like 70,000 people have watched them in three days. It's crazy. And, you know, thousands of people are commenting on the lectures and and have watched all the events surrounding the free speech issue at the University of Toronto. And it's like, it's just. Are you giving people it's, meaning? It's what the hell, man? What's going on? Do you it's, think it's, you, it's, it's it, uh, sorry, Prof. Are you giving people meaning? Do you think? Well, I hope so. I mean, that's what I've been trying to do in my lecturing for years. And, you know, I put my lectures on line back in 2013. They were very popular and I had, some of them had been converted into a, a short TV series, 13 half-hour episodes that was broadcast on public television in Ontario. And people liked those and they liked my lectures. I did some lectures for a series called Big Ideas, about six of them. And they had all sorts of academics giving lectures far before, you know, this became a, a common phenomenon on, on, on YouTube. They had... I guess the major intellectuals of North America and many of Europe give a lecture and tape them and broadcast them. And mm. the lectures I did, I think there were six of them, were very popular. I mean, most of them got up into the top 
20 of the 500 or so lectures. And so I thought, um, well, I might as well tape my classes. And so I just used an iPad and a clip-on mic, you know, low-tech, man. Appalling. I never put up the slides that, that because we, I didn't have... We all have start the, there, Professor. We all start there. Yes, well, exactly. But by, you know, but by April... A million people had watched them, or there was a million views, and, and people were watching them for a long time and, and writing me, and I thought, wow, this YouTube, this isn't just cute cat videos, man. This is this is a whole new thing. And then I thought, well, it's a Gutenberg revolution for speech because all of a sudden now the spoken word can have the same reach, more reach, and the same permanency as a book. Oh, I see. This has never happened in the history of mankind. This is a total revolution. And so I started paying more attention to the YouTube thing. And then in September when I made these videos, I guess that was kind of an experiment. But more than that, it was my attempt to clarify what I was – because I was really nervous about this. I thought something's not right here. There's something about this legislation that really isn't good. And so I thought I was I was not able to sleep, you know. I was thinking about this. And often I get up and write if I'm thinking and I can't go to sleep. But I thought, oh, what the hell? I'll make a YouTube video and maybe see what happens. Yeah. And so someone might uh, watch it. Famous, famous last words, man. <laughs> yeah. So, right, so well, yes, I mean, I'm hoping like my course is called Maps of Meaning. You know, I mean, that's and and I've been working out this theory of individual responsibility and uniting it with the underlying mythos for since 1985 it's like that that's my life's work and yeah. and uh this recent political tornado is a well it's a consequence that fundamentally but you know it's so strange like 2 days ago or 3 days ago i got this letter about a week ago i guess from these jewish guys in germany in some little village and you know they met together to discuss the torah on a fairly regular basis they're older guys and so they sent me a photograph and they said that they spent their first meeting of 2017 transcribing my New Year's letter to the world into German. It's like, okay, that's – who would have cool. thought that? And a bunch of Mennonites from Southern California talked to me a while back about my ideas about Christianity, which they thought were revolutionary and very applicable to what they were doing. And um, I'm talking to a bunch of Russian Orthodox priests later this week and I've got letters from – you know, monks on from the Isle of Man, and um, it's just—it all, it all seems very reasonable, and it all seems great that the basically these ideas are spreading. I think my final question for you is: uh, the world seems to be in quite a state of flux, um, and there's a lot of hysteria. Uh, you, we're speaking to you the day before Trump um, is inaugurated. Yes, um, yes. Obviously, by the time we release this, it'll be uh, early into early mid Feb. Um, so I, I don't, I don't personally believe he will have destroyed the world by then. Um, so hopefully this will see the light of day, but, um, there's Trump, uh, you know, there's Brexit in the UK. There's worry about other elections in Europe. Um, no one really worries too much about what happens to us on the African continent here, but there's a whole bunch of stuff happening as well. Uh, if you follow some of the uh, folk in Australia, there's a lot of the social justice issues there, similar to Canada. Um, and and then obviously there's whole, the whole Russian-Chinese 
sort of axis. Um, so the the world and and if you if you believe you know those who want to tell you the world is quite literally coming to an end on Twitter, um, you would simply end your life this evening. Um, because the, there's no reason to live. If Trump doesn't kill us with nuclear weapons, he will, um, you know, by putting women into um, concentration camps and, and, and banning gay people and Muslims, um, and, and along with all the other stuff that all the other dictators across the world are supposedly going to do. Uh, uh, what's your perception of the reality and, and where the world is heading? Well, I do think that we are in a state of, of chaotic flux. I, I mean, whether that's, and it seems much more chaotic than it was 10 years ago, but perhaps no more chaotic than it was in the 60s or the mid-80s. Yeah. You know, the early 60s or the mid-80s. So, but the chaos seems to be more, it's, it's because the world is so united now, it's like the chaotic state involves everybody at the same time and in similar ways. And so that's new. Um, I believe that each choice that the individual makes determines the course of of being in, in some small way and sometimes in a large way. I mean, you, you don't know. And your actions are dependent on your aims. And if people aim, if enough people aim properly, then we'll negotiate our way through the chaos. And you start aiming properly by aiming at things that someone as useless as you could hit. You know, there's humility in that. It's like, well, what could I fix that I really could fix that I'm good enough to fix? Well, there's something right next to you, right beside you that you could fix. And like, fix it, fix it, man, fix it. And then find the next thing to fix and fix it and then find the next thing. And you're going to get better as a fixer. <clears throat> and things around you are going to get better. You know, it's a it's a mythological truism that the hero is always born threatened. You know, Moses is a good example. So Moses is threatened by the, the edict of the Pharaoh that all the firstborn Jewish males are to be put to death. And, of course, the same thing happens with Christ. And, and there's a reason for that. And um, the, the hero is always extraordinary born in extraordinarily threatening times and and at risk of death and that's because human beings are like that you know we're born very fragile and we're always at risk and so but the hero is born at the point where chaos is greatest and it's always the hero who saves the world well the question is who is that hero and the answer is well it's you uh so uh, good luck with that because it's it's a non-trivial problem and you need to take responsibility for that and that starts by re- taking responsibility for your own monstrousness to begin with and trying to deal with that and that's a big deal man that's a that's a huge deal that's, because that small change no, change your world and and and, yes. and and accumulatively change the whole world yes well and you know you jung carl jung said well the first part of the process of, of personality transformation is to encounter the shadow, the dark part of yourself. And that tells you why enlightened people are few and far between. Because, you know, Jung said the shadow stretches all the way down to hell. And what he meant by that was that if you look into your own malevolent impulses, your destructive impulses and your resentful impulses, um, you'll see that there's a desire to 
damaged being at the bottom of it. It's a satanic desire. I think Darth Vader said something similar. Who? Darth Vader. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yes, exactly. But that's exactly why those stories are so are so potent and popular. You know, it's it's myth. It's the myth in a new form like Harry Potter. You know, I mean, you just can't live without this stuff because it's true, this stuff. And so when you look into your soul and if you look in long enough, you'll see the Nazi and they're grinning back at you. And that's terrifying. And so people don't go there and no wonder. But until you understand that the horrible perpetrators of atrocities in the world were people like you. I mean, I don't mean everyone has that same proclivity yeah. identically or anything like that. But you gotta, you got to restrict. You have to restrict the evil in your own soul before you're going to be able to restrict the evil anywhere else. And, and so I believe, and this is the central idea of the West, I believe that the individual is the salvation of the world. Simple as that. And that you play a role in that. And, and you, and if you don't do that properly, mm. like if enough people fail to do that, then for all intents and purposes, it's the apocalypse. Got you. So, what a great way, what a great way to end off. Ramon, you want to get some, some recommendations? Professor, if for someone who does want to find meaning in their life going forward from here, um, what do you recommend they do other than your, your suite, but in terms of books? Well, I have a reading list on my website, okay, jordanbpeterson.com. And like I've put the books that have been most important to me there and I'll keep updating it. I mean, it's no sense recommending 200 books to people. You know, that's just not hopeful, we'll, useful. We will post a link. I, yeah. I, and yeah, you can find it. There's a book list link there. And, you know, there's classics of. Most of them are 19th and 20th century classics, although some of them are also scientific works for those who have a more scientific bent. Um, but if you read those books, man, that's a good start. And lots of people are reading them, especially the Gulag Archipelago, which I think that should be mandatory reading. Well, you can't do that, but it should be heavily recommended reading for every university student yeah. because it's, it's a it's an outstanding book. It's. It's like a, it's like someone screaming in outrage for 2,700 pages. It's just unbelievable. And so what Solzhenitsyn went through to write that book is, is, it's miraculous, you know? So it's brilliantly written and it, it's so powerful. It's just like, you're just being punched page after page, you know, so it's hard. Reading all the books I put up there are demanding moral reading. Dostoevsky is like that yeah. too. Nietzsche, Jesus, that guy, he'll just tear you into pieces. And Dostoevsky, well, that's like it. Every book is like a trip into insanity and back. It's yeah, it's really. I've read most of them, other than the Gulag Archipelago. Nevertheless, Professor Peterson, from my side, this was a fantastic. Uh, conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us in this uh, pithy little South African podcast. Uh, you're, you're, uh, I found this really valuable, and, and thank you so much for your time.
thank you for the invitation and, and email me guys and let me know about the link and I'll tweet it and, and yeah, all of that. No, we, we will, we will definitely. And we really do appreciate you joining us. It's, uh, we hope to uh, spread those ideas as you talk about and, and have more dialogue because uh, good, that's what good. matters. Well, and all these ideas are, are elaborated on, you know, in 500 hours of videos on my YouTube channel, Jordan Peterson videos. So if people who are listening are interested Believe me, there's more than enough of me on the web. Yeah. So and your podcast, uh, which I've also yes. found some mind blowing concepts in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Me. Yes, they were mind blowing concepts for me too, and and that's for sure, man. So, all right, guys. Thank thanks. Professor. Thank you so much. All the very all right. best. Thank you so Thank much for you your time. Cheers. Yes. Yes. Bye. 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 Well, Ramon. I uh, think that is going to be a, a top podcast of all time. I'm exhausted. That's just the intelligence in that man, like just frying my brain. Yeah, I, now I have to go home and uh, stare into my soul and see the Nazi no, laughing no, back no, at me. No, I have to go. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I have to go home and like do menial shit because I don't have time to look at the Nazi in my in my soul. It, it, you, ha- but uh, the menial shit, you will find meaning. So, uh, on that note, well. Let's, dear listeners, if I can just give credit, Jonathan Witt managed to snag Professor Peterson. So on the podcast, you won't hear this very fucking often, so you better pay attention. <laughs> I'm going to say thank you, Jonathan Witt, well, for, for, for doing this. It was, it was really great. I had a fantastic well, time. All credit to Prof. Peterson, who uh, frankly has no ego about him and was more than happy to come on our podcast after spending time on far bigger shows. And we really hope you've enjoyed it. As always, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, that's at Renegade underscore report. You can find us on Facebook. Give us a like, the Renegade Report. And if you would like to email, email us, Renegade Report mailbox at gmail.com. You can find Ramon at Roman Kavanagh on Twitter and myself at Jonathan underscore wit. We will catch you next week with another great podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Central.com.